Hello, and welcome to the Our Resources Podcast. I'm your host, Kalen Barand. Thanks for listening today. On today's episode, we have the magnificent Dr. John Mellon, um, and he is a social scientist. He has spent most of his academic career working on very topical and important issues for, for everybody, regardless of whether or not you're a minor. These are topics such as uh, elections, democracy, and trying to really understand how our societies work, how, how people interact with one another in these social spheres. I wanted him to join me on the podcast because he, he published a, a paper recently, a very interesting paper, um, about exclusion restriction violations. So what this is, as, as far as I can tell, is that basically when social scientists are trying to do experiments and trying to be able to understand the data that they are analyzing, they want to find a third random variable, basically a random variable that influences the system. So that way they can say, under these random conditions, we're seeing a correlation between X and Y. In the real world, because people are complicated, um, there are many, many Xs um, leading to every single Y that we have. This idea of having some type of random variable that causes a shift in both X and Y, and that we can be able to, to correlate those two variables together is really important. Dr. John Mellon argues that, in fact, a lot of social scientists have not been able to find a truly random variable. And now what he means by that is that they aren't finding a variable that truly only affects the input. And thus, we're actually measuring the true relationship between X and Y. Instead, he argues that a lot of these so-called random variables that are being used to find this correlation are actually influencing both the independent and the dependent variable. So he gives a very good example of this during today's episode, and not not to spoil the episode, but but trying to uh, summarize it succinctly, is with election studies. So a lot of these studies want to measure things like what news sources you read and um, your age, your background, and how that affects how you vote on election day. So, to be able to understand this relationship, a social scientist might, for example, use weather um, on an election day as a random variable, um, because weather is is random enough, so if there are, there's a rainy day, there's a sunny day, in theory, it shouldn't make an impact on the background of a person and what news sources they read, and hence you're actually measuring the correlation between whatever your input and your output, which in this case is, is how they vote in an election. But he, he says that there is a significant issue with this because obviously with something like an election, if it's raining outside, I know personally I, I don't want to go vote. I'm going to stay inside. Um, and so this is basically the case that Dr. John Mellon is making is that um, throughout a lot of social science studies, we have not been taking a reality check on whether or not some of these random variables are actually influencing the outcomes. And this, this has grave and serious impacts for all of us because it, it determines how we understand our social systems and the, the policies and prescriptions that we're using 
in order to to remedy those and, and improve them. Um, and so this has large ramifications, as we've already talked about, it has major implications for things like democracy. Um, and during the episode, Dr. Mellon brings up other very important features of our society, such as war, conflict, um, income, well-being, very fundamental human things that we all care about. Now, in respect to mining, I also found the the conversation to be absolutely fascinating because in mining, a lot of times we are we're entering the big data age, and so we're entering the time where we're pulling information on how operators perform on drills, trucks, shovels, etc. But a lot of this information is not analyzed from a, a social scientist's point of view. It's analyzed simply in terms of correlations of X and Y. Um, if you're fancy, you might have like Power BI and it will do some of the correlations for you. But I, I really liked having Dr. Mellon on this episode because it highlights that we need to be looking at this data with a, a nuance, that we need to be sure that we're understanding how we're interpreting the data before making conclusions about it. Because in our case, it, it may lead to a significant difference in in how we interact with our operators, how we interact with our equipment, and make a major influence on the very basic things that mining operations need, such as production. Uh, so during today's episode, I, I'd appreciate if everyone could keep this in mind as they're listening to the conversation, and uh, hopefully you're able to understand my concern and want for a bit of nuance in this big data age with within mining and beyond mining. Um, so with that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It was an absolute pleasure to be able to have Dr. John Mellon on the podcast. Um, and thank you for listening. So, Dr. John Mellon, thank you for being on the Our Resources podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here today. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, and uh, I really appreciate you having me on and uh, very excited to talk about some of my work. Uh, One thing I should say before I get started is anything I say today are my own views, and they don't reflect the position of the United States Military Academy, my employer, the Department of the Army, or the Department of Defense. So with that out of the way, uh, happy to answer any questions you have. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, um, that's that's always important. Since we started off talking about your job, why don't you tell us what you do, who you are, um, and, and what you're really passionate about? Yeah, so um, I've got a bit of an unconventional uh, pathway through academia. So uh, I did my undergraduate in uh, politics, philosophy, and economics, uh, so mostly a social science-focused work, and then shifted into sociology for my uh, master's and PhD work, which was quite quantitative-based, looking at surveys, looking at big data sources that could let us know about uh, human behavior, particularly public opinion. Then I shifted into... um, working on the British election study, which is a large uh, survey of British voters, where we re-interview the same set of 30,000 people about every six months to look at how they've changed their views on what's happening in the world and also how they're changing their intentions politically. And so we were lucky enough to go and get to do this across the uh, Brexit period and across several general elections. So we've been able to track people over a substantial period of time there uh, to understand uh, what's been driving their votes. Um, But my work more generally is focused on social science methodology of understanding how we go and reach the conclusions as social scientists about the world, about people, and what can lead us astray in making those conclusions. 
great introduction. And I, I do want to come back to your work with the, with the British election survey, but I do, I want to focus most of our discussion starting off about social science and kind of the core of your work, which is the methodologies behind how we're reaching our conclusions, particularly within social science. Um, so starting off at the, the very basic, the first question I want to ask is, is as a social scientist, what, what are you trying to do? What are your goals? What are you trying, what methodologies are you employing to advance the field? Yeah, so, I mean, social science is a very, very diverse field. So there's a lot of different methodologies out there. Um, in terms of quantitative social science, um, we'll generally be using a relatively small variety of tools. So we'd be using things such as surveys, trying to understand what people think about something or recording information about them. We might be using individual level administrative data, so records of what taxes people pay, who they're employed by, um, sometimes even whether they turned out to vote or not. Uh, and we can also often be using aggregate data, so data on a particular area, how much productivity is in that area, how many people are employed in that area, how many people voted for each party in that area. So those are kind of the main sources of data that social scientists use. Then we would tend to be using statistical tools to analyze that. Ideally, in the simplest case, you would be able to do an experiment where you randomly assign some variable of interest. Maybe it's uh, we send out uh, flyers to tell people to go vote on election day to 50,000 people, and then we don't send anything out to another 50,000. And we compare the turnout rates in those two groups. That would be a clean experiment where it's relatively easy to analyze that using simple statistical tools. Uh, but a lot of problems we look at aren't as easy to analyze as that. And we have to use data that already exists where we didn't randomly assign people. And then you have to get into much harder questions about how to statistically model that, account for potential sources of bias, uh, measurement problems as well. Um, and that's been a lot of my research of trying to say, can we do better at uh, building those tools, using those tools, and also thinking about what we're missing and how much that could be leading us uh, off base on it? Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so you, you already mentioned a little bit about uh, variables, but I think that that is a very critical part of the following discussion is, is the discussion of variables, the types of different variables mm -hmm. and, and how we assign variables um, in these different types of studies and, and when analyzing the data, as you discussed. Um, so can you just explain like null hypothesis and different instrumental variables, independent, dependent, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, fundamentally just a variable is, a set of information about different units. So your units might be people. So say we survey a thousand people, then the variable will be how much does each of those people support the party? And it would fundamentally just be a series of numbers of say, you know, a zero to 10 scale of how much each person supports the party according to how they answered on the survey. And then the variable will be all of those values for each person. And then we might want to go and relate that to some other variable of interest, say, whether or not they actually voted for the party, which might be just a one or a zero, <clears throat> where it's a one if they voted for that party, it's a zero otherwise. And so if we were using the approval of the party on that zero to 10 scale, that would be the independent variable that we're using to predict the zero one variable of do they vote that for that party. And you would relate those at the simplest level using something like a correlation value. But often what we'll end up doing is using a regression model that goes and finds a line of best fit through the uh, dependent variable on the y-axis and the independent variable on the x-axis. And that's, that's for the simple two-variable case, but often what you'll want to do is also account for other things. So perhaps men and women are different in the way they support the party, and that's something you want to account for, in which case you would include an additional control variable of 
uh, whether it's a male or a female respondent uh, when you're considering the outcome. And so then that kind of generalizes away from the simple uh, scatter plot to it being multidimensional, but it's still the same basic logic of you're shifting the uh, slope of a line. It's just over multiple dimensions now. Okay. Um, Sorry, go on. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned instrumental variables, um, and that gets in, that's a much trickier technique. So, what I've described so far is just the simple kind of uh, basic observational research where you would say, we have some variable we're trying to explain, in this case, vote choice. We have a variable we think might be the causal explanation for it, that if this changed, mm -hmm. then the dependent variable would change. And we have some things that might go and get in the way of us identifying that relationship. So, we include them as control variables. Now, the challenge is that the social world is incredibly complicated and there's a huge number of potential control variables we could think about. Mm -hmm. And we might not know what they all are. We might uh, not have measured all of them in the data we have available. And we might also potentially have um, not measured them as well as we would want to. And so a lot of the time we're concerned that there's all of these things that could be affecting our estimate of the relationship between two variables but we can't really control for them by measuring them directly and including them as uh, controls in, say, a regression model. And in that case, uh, you often have to go and shift towards some kind of workaround techniques where you're using some kind of assumptions and some kind of exogenous variation, that's external variation, to go and simulate what would happen if we had something that was a bit closer to that experimental case we started with, where you randomly assigned the variable rather than just uh, observed what happened in the real world. Uh, and instrumental variables are one example of this. So the, the example which uh, in the paper we're going to talk about today, uh, which often gets used, is rainfall. So uh, let's say on election day, you're interested in, does higher turnout lead to um, the Republican Party to get more votes or fewer votes? Uh, so maybe it's the case that the kind of people who might turn out might not turn out. If they come out on election day, then Republicans do worse because Democrats do well among those voters who are kind of marginal at the edge of whether they'll vote or not. But the problem is, if you just go and do that correlation between, between how many votes did the Republicans get and how, many, how high was turnout, there's a lot of other factors that could be going on. It could be that those areas with lower turnout are also less educated, or perhaps they have different levels of different ethnicities, or perhaps there's different industries there. All of those factors could instead be the real reason behind uh, why, uh, turnout, why the Democrat or Republican vote share differs in these different places. And so what we want to find is some variable, and this is the instrumental variables idea, some variable that affects turnout and shouldn't affect vote choice in any other way other than via turnout. So it's almost as if uh, God's coming down and randomly manipulating uh, turnout for us with an experiment. So it's almost like the, the natural world is creating an experiment for us. And then we can analyze that experiment that's given us uh, and find the true causal effect without having to worry about all of these uh, endogeneities, all of these confounding variables. Uh, and so that, the example, that, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, you, you're explaining that really well. Um, and so I, I was going to say that in your paper that we're going to discuss, um, you, I thought you highlighted this for me really well, um, that in, in your example of the election case, um, you're kind of looking, when you're trying to see how many votes the Republicans would get, that would be a simple X, some change in X leads to a change in Y. So you're independent and dependent. But by bringing in the instrumental variable, you're trying to be able to say, W affects X and X affects Y, but W does not affect Y. So if we can measure uh, any type of change in, in W and correlate that to a change in Y, then we know that our relationship is sound. Is that correct? 
Yeah, that, that's correct. So in this case, the example, and this is one that a lot of people have gone and done, is said, okay, well, people don't like going out to vote if it's raining because you get wet, it's a pain, uh, you know, there's cars, often traffic jams. It, it's just not mm-hmm. nice to go outside and have to vote when it's raining. And so they claim at least that turnout tends to be a bit lower if it's raining on election day, and then they're going to use that rain as if it was, um, you know, the natural world giving us an experiment about turnout levels. And so you can use the rain to go an instrument, as we call it, uh, turnout, and look at turnout's effect on Republican vote share. And the idea here is you're bypassing all of that endogeneity, all of that social complexity of the world, of the way in which industries and history, racial dynamics and everything else affect Republican vote share and say, no, we just have this one thing that affects only turnout, and then that's going to have a knock-on effect on Republican voting. So we get that clean causal effect. At least that's the idea of it anyway. Thank you for explaining that. Um, and then I, you've already mentioned the, the phrase a few times, endogeneity. Um, and you start off this, this paper by saying endogeneity is one of the most pervasive challenges faced by social science scientists. Um, so can you just explain what that term is, why it's a challenge, and why ordinary people should care about it? Yeah, so endogeneity, I mean, the, the sort of strict definition is it's a variable that is determined by the system as opposed to it being random with regards to the system. But uh, there's two key ways in which this comes out. The first one's omitted variable bias. So if you go and collect data on, say, ice cream sales per day across the year, and you collect data on the murder rate um, by day across the year, what you'll find is there's actually a strong correlation between them. Uh, so, you know, you might ask, is that a causal relationship? I mean, do you, do you think that's a causal relationship, that uh, higher ice cream sales is leading to more murders? I, I sure hope not. <laughs> yeah, so it, it seems unlikely. And the answer is no, it's not a causal relationship. And what we're missing is that there's an omitted variable here that causes both of them. And that omitted variable is how hot the weather is. So unsurprisingly, you sell more ice creams in the middle of summer when it's hot than you do in the middle of winter when no one wants an ice cream. Uh, But it's also the case that the murder rate goes up when you have hotter weather. And this is quite well established that people, for whatever reason, they get more angry. They tend to be outside more, so they interact with each other more. So the murder rate goes up, the ice cream sales go up, and therefore you get a correlation between them. But it's it's not a true causal relationship. It's just reflecting that we haven't accounted for a third variable that caused each of the separate ones. Uh, so that's one form of endogeneity, that's omitted variable bias. Okay. Um, the second form of endogeneity is reverse causation. So that one is one where we have an obvious direction that causality could go in, but maybe it could sometimes go in the other direction too. So what you'll find is people who think the economy is going well are much more likely to vote for the current governing party, which makes sense that you mm-hmm. know we elect parties to go and uh, deliver good economies for us. That's one of the core things we think governments are meant to do. So it seems like a really intuitive thing that when we see, oh, the governing party's doing better among people who think they're doing a good job, essentially, that's probably economic voting. It's accountability voting. It's the kind of thing we want in a democracy. But there's quite a lot of evidence that the causation actually goes the other way as well, which is people who support the governing party tend to go and give higher ratings to the economy, even regardless of how well the economy is going. So the causation also seems to go in the other direction that if you like the party, then you tend to go and say, ah, there's some ambiguous information about the economy here. I'm going to interpret it in favor of the party I like, as opposed to saying that it's uh, as bad as an opposition party. And opposition supporters tend to just be very negative about the economy, kind of regardless of how well it's going. So 
you, although you might think it's a simple story of accountability, actually there's just as much evidence of the effects going in the other direction that party supporters tend to shift their perceptions or at least their reports of their perceptions of the economy to match their partisanship rather than the other way around. You've, you've brought up a few examples of how this comes into our everyday lives, but what I want to dive into is, is how do we try to identify either these unobserved variables or try identifying these types of relationships with one another? I mean, it seems like uh, coming at it from a naive perspective, it, it seems like it's almost an impossible task that you're assigned with, that you're just trying to find as many relationships as possible and try controlling for them. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you're not wrong. It is a, it's a genuinely hard task. I mean, one of the reasons why social science is difficult and why I, I think we don't make as much progress as we'd like to in finding out facts about the world is that the social world is very complicated and it's very interconnected. Um, and it also reacts, it reacts to itself. So when people uh, see the economy going better, they change their expectations about that. And then that has effects on the economy as well. So you have all of these feedback loops because people are reactive agents who react to what's happening, that you have a lot of very complicated recursive processes that um, make it quite hard to go and unpick that, you know, step-by-step causation. So I think the, I think, I think it genuinely is uh, difficult. It's not a, there's no silver bullets. Now, there are some questions where you can do that clean experiment, where you can just randomize the variable you're interested in. And uh, experiments really do get you to just a clear causal story because, you're doing the random assignment of people into one uh, value or the other. And as long as you get a large enough sample size, on average, the difference between the groups you assigned should be the causal effect of your treatment. And that's uh, kind of the gold standard that we can really trust. But it, it's limited because there are some things we can't assign. We can't randomly assign people to experience a better or worse economy or uh, randomly assign them to be brought up in a Democratic or Republican household. And they're often things we care about just as much as the things we can randomly assign. See, so so this is mainly we can say that this is mainly going to affect observational studies, whereas experimental exactly. studies are uh, pretty straightforward and clear cut. Yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly there's a lot of limitations to experimental studies. Uh, often, your experiment can be a bit artificial; it's less relevant to the real world. But in terms of establishing that causal relationship, they're much cleaner in that sense. Um, but yeah, observational studies, it's its genuinely difficult. And I think we don't have full answers to this. I, I think part of it is trying to take a more holistic view of what has everyone said so far about the world? Are we making consistent claims in the literature? Where does the literature mm. disagree with itself? Are people making claims over here that disagree with the ones over here? Because a lot of the time, what we've ended up doing in social science is allowing just an accumulation of ever more findings that don't necessarily fit with each other. And so we know something has to be wrong in that, but there's not a lot of work going into trying to unpick which parts of this literature are correct. What's the most consistent story we could tell about all of the data we have and all of the studies. And that's going to mean saying that some findings out there are probably wrong or uh, overstated. And some of the ones that uh, are out there actually are real. And uh, I, I think our best bet is going to be triangulation coming at the same question from a lot of different angles. If we can find data that support the same causal story using individual level data, using aggregate data in different contexts, and also it uh, matches experimental studies, I have a lot more confidence in results coming out of that than if it's one clever trick with you know an instrumental variable that you know is making some potentially questionable assumptions that I'm sure we'll get into uh, later. 
I guess one question I have on this, I, th- I think that what you're recommending, it, it seems, it seems like a very logical path forward. Um, but I would like to highlight that at least from my perspective, it seems like what you're suggesting is not that some of these uh, researchers or, or the majority of researchers aren't attempting to do something incorrect with their uh, findings. It's simply a, a matter of how the study was set up. Would, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I think there's, I think the rate of people attempting to do something uh, wrong or unethical is pretty low in social science and in most of science. Like there's definitely examples of it, but I think the far more common thing is we we make errors because we haven't totally worked out the right way to use our tools. Um, we haven't developed the correct tools yet or because we're taking social science one question at a time. And this is, I, I think the key problem is we often treat each paper as a separate thing, as if it's the first one that was ever written in an area, as opposed to saying, how does this fit into our entire base of knowledge? And that's much harder to do. And I think we haven't completely systematized how to think about each finding in the context of everything else that's come before. But if you want to be an incremental science, I think you do eventually have to work out how to do that because each of these studies by themselves seems reasonable. You kind of read through them. They justify their assumptions reasonably well. It's only when you look at the whole body of the research that you see there's hundreds of studies here and they can't all be right because they're saying contradictory things. And so every individual author there is doing something perfectly reasonable, but they add up to something that can't all be true. Uh, and this is just a pervasive thing in kind of most observational science uh, that we kind of write one paper at a time and that paper is assessed on its own merits without thinking about how does it fit into our whole body of knowledge. I mean, I'm trying to relate it back. So my background is is in engineering and geology and it's a, it's a different uh, situation. And so I think, I don't know if we have a better system in place, but I think that what you're describing is... Uh, quite a pervasive issue um, that goes far beyond just social science into a lot of other sciences as well. And um, I think it's addressing a really deep issue with the way that our, our system has been developed. Um, and so... So can I jump in on something? Because I think it's a super interesting yeah. um, question of why the kind of the so-called harder sciences are a little different on this. I, I think the key difference is for sciences where there are very well-established kind of ground rules. So like, you know, physics, Mm -hmm. chemistry, they're they're pretty deterministic accounts where if you go and run for all the equations, you're not going to get two scientists differing about what the answer is. Now, they might differ about how to do that in practice, but you still have that base to fall back on of the fundamental equations we know rule this. Now, you know, scientists differ all the time about what the consequences of that are going to be, but you have that Mm -hmm. base of fundamental processes that are more deterministic. And if there's a disagreement between two scientists, that disagreement can often be resolved by going back to, okay, let's really go and dig down into the lower level of the physics or the chemistry to say what's really going on here, who's making assumptions that contradicts the the fundamental physical processes. Whereas we don't really have an equivalent of that in social science. There, There's no hard rules at the same level of physics or chemistry or biology uh, generating that. So it, um, it, it can make it harder to go and integrate everything because we don't have that such a strong, you know, causally clear base about, you know, physical processes mm-hmm. interacting. And not that these issues don't exist in hard sciences either, but just uh, they at least do have kind of a tiebreaker to go back to. They can always go and say, let's break this down into what the fundamental claims are about 
atoms bouncing into each other. Yeah, I, I think I think your assessment is fair. Um, I would I, I do want to push back a little bit, and and this is one of the reasons that I found your work so interesting was I, I think that there are some of the some similar issues even within some of the harder sciences based on what assumptions are made for the starting point of, of whatever mm-hmm. theory, whatever mathematics is, is being done. Um, because if you're, if you're changing that initial ground state, your yeah, initial absolutely. state of the system, then you're going to get totally different answers. Um, so, so with that, um, I wanted to kind of go more into your paper. Um, I think that the, our discussion so far has been a, a great introduction, but um, the title of the paper is called Rain, Rain, Go Away, uh, 192 Potential Exclusion Restriction Violations for Studies Using Weather as an Instrumental Variable. Um, and so I I want to spend a, a good amount of time on this, um, but to summarize it from my perspective, and please um, tell me if I'm misinterpreting this, uh, but the way I see it, you're, you're looking at all these different social studies trying to relate weather, which is supposed to be that critical instrumental variable to some type of social outcome. And your finding is basically that there's 192 different ways that there are unobserved uh, variables that are influencing the system, or there are some of those reverse relationships that you were mentioning. Um, And so a lot of these studies potentially could be uh, misinterpreting the data that's been collected is that fair yeah so just to just to sort of clarify a couple of points on that uh, but that that was a good overall summary so if we go back to the example of the kind of weather example i was talking about earlier of the you have different uh, rainfall election day that affects turnout and then maybe turnout affects uh vote choice so the, the key assumptions there are that rainfall is randomly assigned or close to randomly assigned that it's not correlated with you know prior democratic vote share or something like that um, or at least that you can control any correlations that were away so the exogeneity requirement is the first key one and i think people generally find that pretty plausible with weather that weather is a pretty random thing or at least day-to-day weather variation after accounting for the long term is quite random you know there's some ways you can critique that of you know areas with mountains have systematically different weather than mm-hmm. areas with plains um and sometimes it can be that short-term weather variations are correlated with long-term, but overall the random side of weather seems pretty plausible. But the, the other assumption that's really key, and the one you were uh, highlighting there, is what's called the exclusion restriction assumption. And this mm-hmm. says that the only way that weather is going to affect your dependent variable, that is the uh, Republican vote share in this case, is via your particular independent variable of interest, so that is turnout, and that there's no other causal route weather can take to get to a Republican vote share. And the problem with this is actually that there are hundreds and hundreds of studies that have used weather as an instrument for all sorts of different things. So there are studies that have used uh, weather as an instrument for the level of income in a country, for instance. So you have more rainfall, uh, crops grow better, and you end up having more income that year. And then people will use that level of income in a country as a variable predicting, say, conflict or whether there'll be a political coup. Um, whether they'll go and adopt new technologies. There's all sorts of interesting knock-on effects people want to look at with that. But then you also have uh, weather linked to lots of other things, like weather can directly affect migration. If your house gets destroyed by a flood, maybe you leave the country. And the worry there is, well, if people are leaving the country, maybe that's also affecting something like conflict or 
uh, political coups or adopting technology. And so that's another pathway that could affect it. So that's a potential exclusion restriction violation. And you start going down this list and you just end up finding more and more variables. Uh, so I'm just getting up the list now. Let's read a few of them off. Uh, so one of the interesting ones is um, crop production. So that's, uh, you know, kind of through the income pathway. But there's also other things. If you produce fewer crops, you're also potentially starving as well. So some of these effects may not be an income effect. They may be a you don't have enough calories effect. Um, it could, Weather also affects uh, pollution. So um, more rain tends to reduce the air pollution. Uh, you also have um, crime being affected by weather. So uh, rainier weather tends to keep criminals home, it seems, and warmer weather seems to mean more murders. Again, maybe that's having an effect on society other than through income. Uh, rainfall actually correlates with historical levels of slavery in the US because it's uh, one of the key factors that decided where cotton was grown. And so mm. if you have areas with certain types of climates, that also tend to be the areas that... Uh, had more historical legacy of slavery. And we see all sorts of knock-on effects with areas that had higher slavery in the US also have higher black populations now, have higher levels of poverty. And so maybe it's one of those other pathways working. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's, I can go on down the list, but there's it ends up with you just finding hundreds and hundreds of these links. And each one of them sounds plausible when you read the paper. It's only when you go and put them all onto one big plot and say, oh, well, there's so many pathways that weather has into the social world that it doesn't seem like this it doesn't seem like this one simple you know neat experimental trick that uh, nature's mm. playing anymore it's more weather's just this important factor in our lives that uh, has all of these impacts at the same time i before so I, later on i want to jump into how you how you show this but um before we get there i guess a, a question that's on the top of my mind is is why Basically, why is this important? Why why shouldn't we just accept that weather does influence all of these different ways and that the studies are, are still valid? What's kind of how is how are the exclusion restriction violations having some type of negative impact on the studies overall? Yeah, so the the key thing isn't that um, we should disbelieve that weather affects all of these variables. In fact, I think we probably should believe that. I think it genuinely is the case that rainfall affects crop production. I think it probably does affect turnout. It probably does affect where slavery happens. It probably does affect income. It probably affects migration, pollution, cattle raiding, uh, drone strikes. That, that was an interesting one I came across recently. Uh, so with cloudy weather, uh, you can't go and have as many drone strikes in an area because uh, the drones have limited visibility. Um, it probably does affect urbanization. It probably affects uh, labor markets, uh, all of these things. Yeah, traffic mm. as well. Uh, so I don't disbelieve any of those. I, I think they're probably all true. The problem is when we want to say it affects this thing and then I can use weather as if it was this variable. So not only am I saying weather affects income, but now I want to say by using weather as if it was an experiment, I can look at the effect of income on something else. Because when you're using weather to do that, you're saying it's only working for income, not any of these other hundred things. And so the effect that you're seeing, that you're saying, oh, weather seems to make conflict uh, more likely, for instance. And you say, oh, that's working via income. So income makes conflict more likely. Well, it might be that it has no effect via income and it's working via the historical legacy of slavery or by crop production in some other way or migration or church attendance or uh, turnout in elections or levels of remittances or any of these other things. So it's 
it's not that we should disbelieve that weather is important. I think weather is very important. It's just that weather is too blunt an instrument. It affects everything. It's not this one neat trick to go and get variation in the one variable you care about. It's it it's just a big factor in our lives. And yes. uh, because it's so important, it can't be a proxy for just one small thing. I see. No, thanks for clarifying that. That makes sense. Um, so it's it's basically that we're saying that there's some type of path dependence based on the the middle sequence. So weather leads to some event and that event leads to our result. And so your point is that if weather is affecting the end result through another route, then we shouldn't be considering that middle step um, as being so crucial. Yeah, exactly. The weather's having these very complicated set of effects yeah. on human life and what these instrumental variable studies want to do is say, no, it's it's not this big picture, lots of effects. It's specifically just through this one pathway. And that, that's the bit of the assumption that I think isn't really tenable once you look at this mm. literature as a whole. Yeah, it's it, it's quite odd because the all of these studies want to say weather's important, but they also want to say then it's very unimportant in every other way at the same time. Yeah. I mean, that's the assumption they're making is weather is only important in this one way that matters to that study. Can you give us a little bit about the methodology that you use to to prove this? So, I mean, I think I think logically it's it's easy to grasp, um, but how can you go about proving this? Yeah, so I mean, the the methodology in the end is actually quite simple. It's uh, finding as many papers as possible that have used this method, and then just enumerating what assumptions they're making, what assumptions they're saying, what uh, pathways they're saying weather works through. And since every single one of these papers are saying weather works for exactly this one pathway, once you go and enumerate several hundred of them, you end up identifying hundreds of pathways that weather is claimed to work through. So um, the, each of those papers making that claim is implicitly contradicting the claims of most of the other papers. Uh, you know, there's some nuances around that of weather that varies, say, daily. So you know, weather on election day, maybe not that relevant to... Um, you know, variation in drone strikes or something where that's a very different type of weather that's relevant in a different context. And similarly, weather that's affecting, say, a year's crop yield maybe isn't going to be so affected by the weather on election day. But nonetheless, there's hundreds and hundreds of cases here. And even if you put really restrictive assumptions on which ones can affect which others, you still end up with dozens of alternate pathways that the causality could be working through. I see. Um, and so, guess what I was trying to get at is that like you mentioned in the paper that um, you brought up basically a, a correlation between weather and the dependent variable and the amount of influence that variable would need to have for um, the exclusion restriction to be violated. And so I guess how I feel like I did not explain that well. No, <laughs> but, no, so, yeah, no, I, I see what you're, Asking. No, so that's that's the second stage of this. So the first stage of the methodology was just enumerating all of the potential violations. But then there is the question of how bad are those violations? So yes, strictly speaking, these assumptions don't hold uh, if there's any violation at all. But if that violation is very small, if the alternate pathway is actually very weak, then even though there's technically a violation, it might not be enough to actually overturn a study's results. So to deal with that, we use a technique called sensitivity analysis, where we ask, okay, if the effect of this other pathway was this strong, would it be enough to go and reduce the effect a particular paper found down to zero or make it insignificant? Um, and yeah, there's a very useful set of tools um, uh, developed by scholars, uh, Sinelli and Hazlitt, uh, who 
that they've made this very useful tool where you can go and plug in potential potential uh, other variables and the original result and say, okay, what would happen if this exclusion restriction violation of this size existed? Um, and then as a result, I can go and look at, oh, many of these violations are of a sufficient size that they could completely overturn most of the study's findings here. Uh, so that ex- additional aspect of the sensitivity analysis allows me to say not only, okay, technically the assumptions are violated and also are they violated to the extent that we probably shouldn't trust these results? And most of the studies are kind of in that range. There's a few that are very strong where I, I think it's unlikely they would be overturned, but most of the studies kind of look like they could easily be overturned by even some fairly modest uh, exclusion restriction violations. That makes more sense. Um, so when you say though the the size of the violation, um, I just want to clarify that is that the that's the correlation between um, the either yeah. the unassumed variable. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so so if you think about the if you about if you think about the exclusion restriction violation as a pathway, so a pathway from weather to the variable you're worried about being the alternate pathway to the dependent variable, there's mm-hmm. two sets of correlations that define that pathway. So first of all, there's the weather to the exclusion restriction violation variable. So how strong is the relationship, say, between rainfall and immigration? Um, mm-hmm. And if that relationship is very strong, then that makes it a stronger pathway that could be overturning another result. Uh, but then you also need to think about how strong would the relationship have to be between uh, the exclusion restriction variable, so immigration, and say your dependent variable of level of conflict in a country. Uh, so the existing studies, uh, we can actually go and extract the strength of that first part of the relationship, the weather to the um, exclusion restriction violation, because they go and report those statistics as part of the instrumental variable analysis. So that first stage, uh, we actually have some pretty good measures of the strength of that relationship, uh, just from the original papers themselves. And then conditional on how strong is that first stage, I can ask how strong would the second stage need to be in order to overturn the result? And if it would take only a tiny relationship between, say, immigration and conflict to uh, overturn a result uh, between, uh, say, income and conflict, that's a problem compared to if that relationship would have to be incredibly strong, then, you know, that's maybe not something we need to worry about as much. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, and so now can can you just summarize the results of the research in your own words? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, I mean, the sort of give it away in the title of the paper, I find <laughs> 192 potential exclusion restriction violations. So there's this giant plethora of uh, potential pathways from weather to all sorts of other variables. Uh, and then in terms of the sensitivity analysis, in that case, I find that most studies where I have enough information about the study to test it for sensitivity, most of them have uh, would not require very large violations of the exclusion restriction assumption in order to overturn them. There's a lot of plausible, similar studies using similar data and similar contexts mm-hmm. that would be sufficient to make this uh, result disappear. So the general finding of it is for your typical weather instrumental variable paper, probably there's enough uh, other other exclusion restriction variables that we should be concerned about the reliability of the result. As I said, that's not true for every single one, but it's certainly the case for, I'd say, the majority of them. And then this is this is kind of a blunt question, but um, so what's the implications of this? Yeah, so um, the key thing is that people have used this method for answering a lot of important questions. Again, you know, one of the really important ones has been uh, does a higher level of income in a country reduce the level of conflict? I, if we do mm-hmm. economic development, 
are we going to reduce how much civil conflict we have? And, you know, there's been this idea that if we help countries to grow, if we make them more prosperous, then it's going to lead to peace as well, so that we're helping them in two ways at once, or they're helping themselves in two ways at once. And a lot of this research is based off instrumental variable methods, where they use the level of rainfall as that instrument to vary income and look at the effect on conflict. So if, for instance, that turns out not to be a valid method they're using, then we have a lot more uncertainty about whether economic development is valuable for conflict or not. Um, and this is goes the same for every other study that's used this. Um, we have uh, all sorts of different cases of whether, um, for instance, uh, having a more rice-growing economy leads to more gender equality has been one case, or whether uh, more whether higher women's equality leads to lower gender-based violence. You know, these are various claims mm-hmm. that have been made using this technique, and they're quite important claims about the world. Uh, they have implications for how we should go and try and fight uh, violence against women, for instance. And if the results from this method are incorrect, then we might be taking the wrong policy uh, responses to that. And we might just not understand how the world works as well as we think we do. I see. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And is, what are some other instrumental variables that are commonly used? And kind of how broad, how broadly is this type of methodology used? So instrumental variables is really, really popular in economics and pretty popular in political science. I'd say those are the two biggest users of it. Um, it, it was invented by economists originally. And so it's it very, very widely used. I'd say a significant percentage of all uh, quantitative economics papers uh, use instrumental variables, like probably, you know, maybe 20% or something like that. I, it is my guess. I could be off on that, but it's, it's a very significant mm-hmm. percentage. It's like one of the core techniques that... Uh, economists use. Uh, So there are other widely used instruments. Um, So uh, I think, let me me just get up the list. I have a... And Sorry, are you good on time, by the way? Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm great on time. Okay. Yeah, so population density has been one uh, instrument. Again, the idea here is that population density is meant to be kind of a historical accident that people just settled in one place and then that's had historical continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also been things such as lead exposure that that's a factor that was fairly random because it was down to some specific choice about technology, about locations in areas. Um, some people have used things like distance from the equator. So uh, it's tended to be seen that uh, countries that are close to the equator uh, are lower income and countries that are further mm-hmm. away from the equator mm-hmm. are higher income. Now, Again, all of these, I think, have some potential concerns with them, uh, particularly these widely used ones. There's also elevation as well. There's the idea um, or roughness of terrain that uh, having sort of flatter, smoother terrain leads to more population growing in that area and higher incomes compared to if you have very mountainous terrain, it's quite hard to build industry. It is at least the idea. There have been various geographic, um, widely used things like this. And... Again, with each of these, I think because they seem like these very general processes, um, I would be skeptical about them for largely the same reasons that, you know, if you have a mountainous area, yeah, it might make industry harder to form, but it also might affect whether you ever got invaded. It might affect, um, you know, what, uh, it might affect immigration from your area. It might affect the culture that grow, grew there. It might affect um, the languages spoken there and whether or not you have access to an ocean and trade routes. And so... Yeah, trying to boil down these big picture kind of geographic or social historical differences into they have just one effect on the world mm-hmm. is is a little bit questionable to me. 
Um, yeah, yeah but, but I don't want to imply that that's the only use of instruments. So there's also another set of papers that use instrumental variables where they will tend to use an instrumental instrument that's much more specific to their particular study. So for instance, there was the Vietnam draft. So whether you got drafted to Vietnam was based on your draft number and uh, you had a higher probability of being selected uh, depending on whether you had a high or low draft number. And so using draft number as an instrument for whether you ended up in Vietnam or not, that seems more specific to the actual variable they're trying to say. Um, and as long as you're just looking at whether you went to Vietnam as opposed to claiming this is the effect of education or something, that seems fairly mm-hmm. plausible because it's much more tailored to the one use as opposed to saying this one variable is standing in for everything in the world. It's saying, no, there's one thing that's got a really obvious link to just this. Uh, and so those kind of papers I find a bit more plausible where their instruments are much more tightly linked to the thing they're interested in. I see. Yeah, that's a. I think that's a really important clarification. So kind of moving on to some of the potential solutions for some of this, some of the issues that are presented here, would that be your recommendation to move towards more specific instrumental variables? Yeah, if, if people are going to use instrumental variable methods, I think finding an instrument that is very tailored to the one variable you're interested in and really meets those exogeneity uh, criteria that you go and do your lit review and check that no one else has used this as an instrument for anything else. And you mm-hmm. also think through, is it the kind of thing that I expect in 10 years, someone else will have come along and written a paper on using the same instrument for something else. I think most of the time, if we sat down and really thought about it, we could have guessed ahead of time that Weber probably had more impacts than just this one thing. It's sort of, I think people tended to think of, can I get away with making this argument or is it plausible enough as opposed to, do I completely believe it myself? Um, and that's not saying anyone was misbehaving on this, just that the kind of, the standards for what we accept in the field had sort of fallen to the level of plausible enough rather than, can I think of a good argument for why it might not be true? I see. Um, I see. And so I think we need to raise the bar a bit on what we accept for instruments. And yeah, one of the things to do that will be just being more specific about the instruments and their direct mapping onto the variable we care about, which is going to make some studies a lot harder because instruments are hard to find. And that's why weather has been so widely used because it kind of affects everything. So everyone takes it off the shelf to use for all sorts of things. I, I really like this idea that you were talking about, about kind of switching the, the precedence. And so w- would it be fair to say that you would, you would like to see a situation in the future where we'd be assuming that instrumental variables do affect our dependent variable results in more than one way. We need to disprove that rather than assuming that they only affect um, the dependent variable through one route. Yeah, so I wouldn't want to go as far as saying we assume, because you can't prove a negative. Uh, so okay. if we put it to the standard of you have to prove that there is no other way it can affect uh, the dependent variable, then instrumental variables is just dead because you, you can never prove that there isn't something you've missed that's another causal pathway. Uh, but I do think we need to put more of a burden of proof on really making that argument. So it doesn't have to be to the level of you have proved that there is no other pathway, but I, I'd like to see a lot more consideration and taking seriously the other pathways mm-hmm. rather than saying, well, I can't think of any others, so it's fine. I, I think most of the time, I think social scientists are more creative than this. I think they probably can think of those other pathways if they wanted to. And yeah, if there are other pathways, that doesn't necessarily mean you're stuck and you can't use it. Think about how big that other pathway is, how strong it is. And you can use sensitivity analysis to say, is this a, is this just, you cannot use this? Is it going to completely blow up the study? Or 
Is it a small enough violation that we can go and do sensitivity analysis and say, even if this wasn't a violation, it wouldn't be enough to really substantively change our conclusions? I see. No, thanks for clarifying that. So it's kind of summarizing, basically just a reasonableness check. Yeah, def- definitely a reasonableness check. Also, a, definitely a systematic policy of checking what people have said on this already in the literature. I think that's another thing of there's so much literature out there that use these methods, use all sorts of methods, mm-hmm. and people tend to act as if they were the first one who ever fought to use rain or another instrument each time. And you would be better off acknowledging that this other literature exists and then, you know, honestly going through is it enough to overturn my results or am I still happy that I can use this variable as I am? And so I think the systematic check of the literature, at least making sure we're not literally contradicting what's already out there, uh, you know, is a minimal check. And then, as you say, also just having a more serious, can I think of plausible reasons why this wouldn't work and taking that argument a bit more seriously than seeing it as just kind of an annoying check you have to go past where you can say, yeah, I can't think of anything else. Let's move on kind of shifting gears and as we're coming to a close, I guess I want to shift to some of your work more broadly, but as well as some of your wisdom that you'd be able to share for, for people overall. Um, so why don't we start off with your work? Um, and so as you mentioned at the very beginning, you do a lot of work analyzing big data from a wide variety of areas. Um, and a lot of it's really important to our societies, um, polarization, elections, democratic systems as a, as a basis for our government. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit about what's really exciting to you right now? So, so I mean, I've worked on a lot of different things, but one of the studies I've been quite excited about recently is trying to answer the question of, do elections change? Do we have changes in which parties win elections because people change which party they vote for or because different people come out to vote? Uh, and this is kind of the big uh, conversion or... Um, convincing people versus uh, mobilization arguments. And this has a lot of implications because generally democratic theory is built on the idea that we're in an open competition between different ideas of how we should run society. And when one side has a better argument, then people will switch over to them and give them a chance to show whether their vision of society Mm -hmm. works or not. And we elect a different party. And if it works well, we reelect that party. If it works badly, we kick them out and we elect someone different. And that's kind of based on a persuasion type of argument. That's the idea of how democracy is meant to work. But there's been a pretty strong idea recently, especially in the US, that actually the way democracy works is you have the people who agree with you. And then all that matters is, are you getting them out to vote on election day? Can you get them excited enough that they're going to turn out at high rates more than your opponent? And so this argues for not trying to ever convince anyone else of anything, but instead just trying to work out what is the red meat you can throw to your base? What's the argument you can make that's going to get the people who already agree with you excited enough to come out on election day. Uh, So I've looked at this uh, now across over 100 elections uh, using some panel data and trying to correct for a lot of biases in it uh, in the US and in uh, 17 other countries around the world. And the answer does seem to be quite promising for democracy, which is in almost every country in the world, it really does seem to be people changing their minds. That's the primary driver of electoral change of different parties winning. Even in the US, it's mostly people changing their minds from one election to the next that drives differences in election results. It's not just you have your core supporters and you just need to get them out on election day. Um, It really matters if you can go and convince people who voted for your opponent last time to vote for you instead. And so 
Uh, that's something I'm quite excited about. Also, just because I think it's quite a promising story for the health of democracy, that that's still the main way that elections work. Yeah, yeah, that's a really positive note. I love to hear that. <laughs> and and I, I my, my one question on this is, is, since we were talking about instrumental variables and the various different ways that people can be influenced, can you tell us a little bit about the methodology of, of this work that you're doing and how you're able to show um, with with high certainty that it is them changing their minds? Yeah, so the, the data I'm using for that is, um, is primarily survey data. So using data where we interview one set of people at one election and then you know, four or five years later, depending on how long the election cycle is, they go back to the same people again, re-interview them and see how they've changed their minds between those two elections. Now, that's called panel data, and it's kind of the gold standard to use for this, but it is, it's a pain to use because it's very expensive to collect. Um, it's got all sorts of problems where people will drop out of the panel, people will die, or you can't follow them up between elections. Um, so I've gone and part of this project was just tracking down all of the different times people have actually gone and uh, collected this data. And it turns out there's been over 104 uh, panel studies like this across the world uh, that have been conducted, but they've never really been compiled into one place before. So one of the things was just collecting all this data into one place. And then on top of that, you have a lot of biases in the data too. So one of the major issues survey data has is people who are not interested in politics tend not to answer surveys about politics because if you can't even be bothered to go out and vote on election day, you don't really want to go and spend you know, an hour speaking to an interviewer about politics. And so we have this huge fundamental bias in a lot of the data we're dealing with where we don't have enough non-voters. So we end up under-representing the importance of turnout because we just don't have enough non-voters there. So a lot of this study was working out ways to correct for that and make it so that the results in the surveys actually match the known election results are demographically representative. And this um, doing this for 104 pairs of elections was just a very large, big data task, essentially, of coming up with a systematic process and system for dealing with all these data in the same way and being able to say something systematic. So it's kind of the, you know, it's the less exciting in the moment work of just really trying to deal with every single one of the 10, 20 problems that can happen with this data and trying to do the best possible job of dealing with those so that we can come out with a relatively simple answer to a question of, is it people switching or is it people changing their turnout that's driving the election results? That's, that's absolutely fascinating. And I'll be sure um, to link to all of your work um, in the Thank description you. of this podcast because I think it's really uh, fantastic. What I really want to end on, though, is that I think that from everything I've read and in our conversation now, I think they've done a really good job at interpreting some of this technical into something that's really meaningful for the average everyday person. Um, and so I feel like a lot of people, you know, you see on CNN, CNBC, whatever news source you're looking at, there's a lot of these uh, social science studies that claim some relation between X and Y. Um, and I guess, what would you suggest that the average person does when they look at some of these news articles and some of this research? How, how should they be interpreting it? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. And I mean, it's, it's tough because, you know, social scientists themselves are, are struggling with these same questions of when we see a study, should we trust it? I, I think the things to do would be to look first, the very basic things would be to look at, okay, what data was used for this? Was it a high quality data source? Um, can I find anyone who seems to be an expert who wasn't involved in the study who's talked about this? It is useful to get a second opinion uh, from people who weren't running the study. If you can find that, that's very helpful often. Twitter has been amazing for this. Uh, you, 
actually have a lot of people who are experts on all sorts of areas, areas I'm not an expert on. And you can, if you find the people who have a reasonably nuanced take on things, who can go and uh, piece through the methodology in a useful way, that's often the best place to go. Because it, it is tough if you're not trained in this to go and read the original paper and be able to say, what's this paper missing? Because it's not always going to be obvious. And often the things that are missing or not correct about it are the things they won't even report in it. So I think um, the answer is either really dive into it and you know learn some statistics and uh, start being able to really engage with it or go and look for people who are doing that kind of work in the public sphere and seeing the kind of things they bring up. And that will also help you if you want to go and read it directly, if you see the kind of things other people bring up when they're thinking about the limitations or why they should trust certain studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly looking at, was this using a source that's somewhat representative? That's a key thing. Um, so if it was a Twitter poll, probably not representative of the general population. If it was a large-scale government survey that's been going for 30 years, maybe you want to trust that a bit more. Um, you probably want to look at whether it was um, conducted by someone with an obvious agenda. Um, I don't want to, There's certainly good work done outside academia, so I don't want to say make sure it's got a good institution attached to it. But if it's being done by someone who they have a very strong interest in the result coming out in one direction, then that is worth being a little bit more skeptical about and looking around for other sources. Now, there's always a limit to that because always people all have their own interests, beliefs, and those are going to end up coming a little bit into work. So you can go too far on that. But certainly thinking about, oh, is this coming from an industry group where they have a very strong incentive in coming out of the result one way? That is going to be a thing to look for. But representative data, does it seem like they have considered obvious alternate explanations is another one that I think anyone can look at of, they say this thing is related to this thing, but if you can think of another explanation that they don't even mention, that might be worth uh, considering. I think even people who aren't trained in statistics can think about, oh, I see ice creams and murders going together. That's probably not a causal relationship. And I, I think a lot of the time when you look at social science, we are all people who experience the social world. We do have some direct experience of what kind of causal processes happen. So uh, in that sense, that is something uh, someone without training can come in and say, but what if it was this other thing instead that's really driving this result? And, uh, you know, that's a place where I think even someone without training can at least do a little bit of work on assessing something. Very empowering for everyday people to be able to do that reasonable check that we were talking about at the beginning. Um, So with that... I think that that's all of our questions and I think you've done a really excellent job at explaining all of your work and really making this a uh, palatable um, for a lot of people, which is excellent. Um, so Dr. John Mellon, thank you so much for being on the R resources podcast. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you.